This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent, joined by Richard Gershon, Dean of the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Matthew Hall, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. No, it's sort of not really. That was our opening nine years ago. Nine years ago. Now our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill, and our guest is Matthew Hall, Associate Professor of Law and Jesse D. Puckett, Jr. Lecturer from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's really, it's, we're thrilled to have Matthew back on the show today. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, good morning to you, Liz. I hope uh, you're ready for Christmas and, uh, you know, uh, your week has been good so far. And, uh, you know, Matthew, welcome back to the show. So, uh, you know, uh, would you please tell us a little bit about your background and, and, uh, and you, know, you know, how you came to teach at the University of Mississippi? Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Liz. It's great to be here again. I'm really excited about talking to people this morning about criminal procedure and interactions between the public and the police. So I've been teaching at the University of Mississippi School of Law for about 20 years, and mainly I teach criminal law and criminal procedure. So I'm really happy about talking about today's topics. Before I was a law professor, I worked at Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and worked on immigration-related national security and counterterrorism cases. And we often dealt with criminal procedure issues in those cases. So really looking forward to people's phone calls and talking about what the police are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Well, it's such an important topic. And one, I think around the holidays, um, hopefully people, uh, you know, only have good interactions. Most most interactions with the police are, you know, perfectly appropriate and good. And we're glad they're there. Uh, but we're talking about our rights when we're dealing with law enforcement officers. And let's start, uh, you know, where we're most likely to encounter uh, law enforcement, and that's when we're in our cars, our vehicles. Uh, when can an officer pull me over when I'm driving? So, Richard, I think that question is really intriguing because there are lots of stories where police officers will take journalists or researchers with them in the car, and they'll be driving along, and they'll, they'll say to the guest in the car, pick a vehicle, and the guest will pick that vehicle, and the police officer will say, in the next three minutes, I can come up with a reason to pull that vehicle over. And, and the reason is that almost all of us violate some minor rule of the road on a regular basis. We change lanes without using our blinker. We, we make a turn without using our blinker. We, we do things that would allow the police to pull us over. And when the police pulls, pull us over for violation of the rules of the road, they're actually pulling us over based on probable cause. They have seen us commit a traffic violation. So I, I think the answer to your question is, when can police pull you over when you're driving? If you violate a rule of the road, which almost all of us do with alarming frequency, but the police can also pull you over based on reasonable suspicion. So if they have suspicion that you're involved in crime, even if it doesn't rise to the level of the officer witnessing 
you violating the rules of the road, they can also pull you over. Once they've stopped me, once they pull me over, how long can they, how long, how long can they keep me? You know, when now they've got me, I mean, is that, am I under arrest? What, what happens? I mean, how does that work? So that's a, a, another puzzle. You, you might think that there's a logical limit on how long they can keep you. And, and you might think that the police should have this duty to, to be as brief as possible and to release you as quickly as they can. But the Supreme Court has sort of said the opposite. The Supreme Court has said, if the police pull you over for a valid reason, they're allowed to detain you. And I think the default from the Supreme Court is about 20 minutes. They're allowed to detain you for 20 minutes, even if they could wrap up the encounter in five minutes. And if it takes longer for them to check your license and registration and insurance documents, it's possible they can detain you for longer. So 20 minutes, that the, the police basically have fair game, that's fair game, and the police are allowed to, in those 20 minutes, do whatever makes sense. Um, and then maybe longer than that, if it takes longer to check your papers. Well, you know, one, okay, so now they've stopped me, and they've got a legitimate reason for stopping me. First of all, I, do, I, do I have to comply? Maybe they would be so I, I think I have two answers to that question. So there's, a, I, I think, a legal answer and a practical answer. The, the legal answer might be in some situations you can assert your rights. And what I have to say about that is even someone like you or me, law professors who might know all of the legal principles in play, might be reluctant to, to assert our rights because we're worried that the police officer will perceive it the wrong way. And so that takes me to the practical answer, which is we know from news stories that there are regular incidents of, of police violence uh, against suspects. And so I think the practical answer is you should comply with the police. And I, I, I don't know that that answer alarms me enormously. Ideally, that's what we want in a society, but we also want a society in which the police don't abuse their power. But I think the short answer would be you have to comply with the police. Well, and I think I think that I, I I think that makes good sense because I mean it's if they if they if you're just polite with them and I think probably things won't uh, escalate. But but can they can they force me to leave my car? Yes, the Supreme Court has said that the Constitution allows the police in a valid stop to ask you to step out of your car. Now that's not always a good idea. I, I don't know that police officers would do that routinely but the police are allowed to ask you to exit your vehicle as part of a legitimate stop on the side of the road. Well, why, why would they do that? I mean, what, uh, why, why would they want me out of the car? So I think there are a, a whole host of reasons and the Supreme Court hasn't said that the police need a specific reason to do that. But among the reasons an officer might have would be officer safety. So the officer can see what you were doing. The officer might also worry that if, if you're in your car, you're going to speed off and prompt a high-speed pursuit. And, and the officer might also be engaged in a legitimate investigation of what you were up to and whether there's additional evidence of crime in your vehicle. And, and so for all of those reasons, the, the court has said officers may ask suspects to get out of their cars. And passengers, by the way. So the officer can ask everybody in the car. To get out, which which is a fairly significant intrusion in, into your life, especially if the officer's operating on just some um, a minor traffic violation or mere suspicion of criminal conduct. 
Right. So now, now we're out of the car and they want, can they go search the car at that point? So in general, no, but, but the officers have lots of options. So the first thing that lots of officers will do is ask for permission to search. And, and so this is called the request for consent. And so the officer can do a consent search. And I think a lot of us fairly naturally want to help the police. And so we often say yes we are absolutely allowed to refuse. So this is a place where I think you can say no to the police. You can't decide when the blue lights show up in your mirror that you're not going to pull over. But if the officer says, may I search your car, you're, you are absolutely within your rights to say no to that. There are other ways the officer can search, though. The officer can also search your car if the officer arrests you. The officer can search your car if the officer has probable cause that there is evidence of crime in your vehicle. That's a pretty high standard. And the officer can also search your car as part of a Terry frisk. So those are three different ways that the officer could potentially search your car. You know, that's, that's so interesting. I mean, I, because I, we think about warrants and things like that, but, I, but there's certainly exceptions to that. Um, and so, uh, I, and let's say uh, they, they see a, a drugs in my car that would be that would be probable cause or something like that so if they see something that's immediately apparent as drugs in the car that would give the officer probable cause if they see something that's just suspicious that might not but a suspicious package in the car coupled with erratic behavior by the driver coupled with the grounds that led the officer to pull the car over those three sort of unrelated pieces of information stacked together might give the officer probable cause. Yeah, if, if I have, it, and the other thing is, I think, you know, because people um, can so freely carry uh, firearms, um, you know, I, I would think that, you know, if I've got a firearm in my, in my, my glove compartment, you know, uh, or somewhere in my car, could they ask me about that? Uh, so, Richard, the, there have been some big changes in, in the past 20 years. So one big change, like you say, is the presence of firearms, which used to, 20, 30 years ago, give the officer some sort of immediate quantum of suspicion. And, and now it's basically a nothing because so many people have weapons with them. And the other one that's even more dramatic is the smell of marijuana. That, that used to be immediate evidence of criminal conduct. And, and now in many jurisdictions, I, I don't want to say it's a nothing, but because marijuana is legal in so many circumstances, medical marijuana, for instance, the smell of marijuana is not automatically the kind of evidence of crime that it used to be. Well, I have two things to, to chime in about. One is you know, uh, Professor Hall, you mentioned they could stop you for any traffic violations. You know, one thing is when you make a left turn onto a street that has, you know, four lanes, you're supposed to turn into the inside lane, then scoot over to the outside lane. If you make a left turn and there's two lanes to go into and you pull into the outside lane, that's technically not correct. And I, you know, everybody does that, but that is something that uh, could be stopped for. And as a female and who have uh, female children, I have always told them, 
yes, comply, but if you don't feel safe pulling over, please turn on your hazard lights or slow down or give an indication that you understand you're being asked to pull over, but wait to pull over somewhere safe, whether that means there's a shoulder or if you're in town, you want to go to a well-lit area. Because then we also hear urban legends, truth, you know, some truth to it, where people will just buy a blue light and stick it on the roof of their car, and they're not really uh, a police officer. So personally, I would always wait until it's a safe place to pull over, and it was someplace I felt comfortable with. Liz, I think you're absolutely right about that. You are, as long as you, as Liz said, as long as you show the officer that you are about to comply with the officer's request. I don't think very many police officers would be frustrated with your selection of the place to pull over. And, and like Liz said, I think a lot of us have, uh, there are things we do driving that we may not even recognize as assertive driving moves that are violations of the rules of the road. When I was younger, I, I was once pulled over because I hadn't scraped enough ice off my window. So the officer pulled me over for having inadequate visibility. In my defense, I had cleaned some of the window, but the officer was right. I had not cleaned the whole window. Oh, you you rabble rouser troublemaker. (laughs) We would love for you to be part of our show. You can send us an email with your questions about our show. It's legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing your rights when dealing with the police. Have you thought about learning more about your police department? I'll tell you how next. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Professor Hall, we got a website now. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now, on Friday, June 19th, 2020, Mayor Chakwe Antar Lumumba signed an executive order amending the use of force policy for the Jackson Police Department. That's on their JPD website. We'll have a link to that on this show's information. And many police departments have websites, Facebook pages, and other ways that you can learn about the police in your area. This morning, we're talking about your rights when dealing with the police. Our guest is former In Legal Terms founding host, Professor Matthew Hall from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We do have a phone call. Let's go to Jim. Jim, thanks so much for calling into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, my comment is, um, well, I was just listening and how you were uh, talking about how you tell your, your daughters, you know, um, like when to they don't feel safe, like in a bad living area to pull over, um, to you know turn on the hazard lights and stuff, and to you know pull over somewhere safe, usually like a gas station, you know, with a lot of light. I was wondering, is in some jurisdictions can that still be considered that you evading the police, uh, or do do the police know that okay? That's not against the law, you know, because I think I heard one time, you know, you know that uh, 
I think in Florida, it was like in particular transition there, it was still evading the police, even though he had turned on his lights and everything and, you know, trying to get to a safe spot and they still charged him. Jim, thanks for calling. That's a great question. I, I think in so many areas of the law and, and we see exactly what you identified, which is ambiguity. We don't have an absolutely clear answer to that question. I think it depends a lot on how long it takes for the person to pull over, whether you can see the gas station up ahead or, or whether somebody spends a mile waiting for a spot where the driver feels safe to pull over and where the police officer is frustrated. I, ideally, what, what you'd want to see is some interaction with the police officer, the police officer showing that he knows that they know what you're doing, maybe turning off the blue lights and following until the car pulls over. But to, to your point, I, I think if a driver took a long time to pull over, an officer might claim that that person was resisting or evading. And that's a risk that, that you take if you, if you don't comply with the police officer immediately. Jim, I've also heard suggested, you know, most everybody has a phone in their car and hopefully they use it responsibly and hands-free, but call 911 and, you know, to let them know, yes, there is a, you know, especially if you are, if you think it's a sketchy undercover police car that you're, you know, quite sure of their authority. But if if there is some doubt, you know, to to call 911 and let them know, because they're recorded, you can say, yes, I know I'm uh, being uh, asked to scoot over, but I don't feel comfortable. M- maybe that would be. Um, additional, it could be relayed to the police officer who's asking. Uh, that That's just personally what I do. And I think our lawyer says it depends. But thank you so much, Jim, for calling in today. And Matthew, Jim's call is, you know, I think that's a, it's a great question because at what point do you feel like you're evading? But I mean, so if I, if I am arrested uh, or not or given a ticket or pulled over and, and the reason I was not stopping right away is because I was afraid that, you know, something bad might happen. And then I just want to get to a safe place. When I have an opportunity to explain that to a court, for example, uh, to mitigate my punishment. Yes. Yeah, so a ticket is uh, when you get a ticket, a citation, it, it's actually a demand that you appear in court. And if you pay the ticket, you're admitting to the charge. So you're actually pleading guilty to the minor traffic violation but you're absolutely allowed to show up in court and contest the charge. And so that might be a situation where either on your own or with an attorney, you could go in front of a judge and explain what happened. And that sounds like a a place where you would have a promising case. I I don't mean an automatic winner, but you'd have a good argument to make. And I think lots of judges would be sympathetic. I I do wanna say that on this, the point that this isn't always cut and dried, Police officers will regularly say that underlying the core of their suspicion is that the suspect was acting nervous and evasive. And that many scholars and lots of people have criticized that because even those of us who are law-abiding often feel nervous during encounters with the police. And that often also sounds like a smokescreen where the police officer could inject their bias about the person that they've pulled over and and simply used nervous and evasive as, again, a smokescreen for, I don't like this person, I don't like the way they were acting, 
possibly for illicit reasons. And so Jim's call and Liz's point highlight the fact that encounters with the police are often not absolutely as cut and dried as we'd like them to be. And, you know, this this time of year, I, I'll even say this time of year, sometimes you encounter, um, you know, just uh, a, a situation where police will stop traffic and, and, you know, just ask for ID of every car and kind of make sure that you're not, you know, driving under the influence. And, um, you know, and that's not atypical. I think, you know, I've, I've gone through those and I haven't been drinking and I, you know, and I, but it's still, I get nervous, you know, pulling out my, my, my ID. Cause I'm always afraid. What if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing? And, you know, and so it's understandable that people are going to be nervous in those situations. Yeah. So Richard, I, I want to talk about roadblocks, but um, my wife and I went to a Tom Petty concert once. Um, Tom Petty is, I, I think for many people sort of synonymous with, marijuana smoking. I, I was the one person who going through the checkpoint was just waved through. They, they took one look at me and were like, we're not even going to frisk this guy. So uh, checkpoints are interesting because a checkpoint is stopping people without suspicion. And the Supreme Court has said that as long as what the police are doing is a legitimate roadblock related to the use of the roads, so a, a DUI checkpoint, or a license and registration checkpoint, maybe an accident investigation checkpoint, that those roadblocks are permissible. But they are certainly dramatic in that they're stopping every driver and briefly detaining every driver and, and therefore making lots of us really nervous about this interaction with the police. It's it's so interesting, it really is. And, and you know, now can we turn our attention away from our cars and to kind of the more intimate uh, setting our homes where we, you know, feel that that's kind of our, our inner sanctum. And, and so yes. uh, when can law, uh, law enforcement officers come to my home and search my home? All right. So here we've made a really dramatic transition. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people were listening earlier, really alarmed about the amount of power the police have when we're in our cars. There's been some interesting scholarship recently, people writing about the fact that the amount of time Americans spend in their cars has meant that the police now have tremendous power. But when we switch from cars to our houses, we get a, a, a result that's much friendlier to civil liberties because the Supreme Court really treats your home as your castle. So the police are not allowed into your home without some significant cause, typically without probable cause and without a warrant. So the police are not allowed to search your home based upon suspicion, and they, they can't follow you for two minutes and create a reason to search your home. And I think you know, one, one justification for that is when we use the roads, we, we are agreeing to the rules of the roads, which include, it's just like going through TSA as well. I mean, I think we certainly give up some of our rights as we walk through you know, TSA. And I think when we're on the road, we do too. We had a caller one time calling and say, that making him wear a seatbelt was an infringement on his personal freedoms. And it's really not. I mean, if you want to use the road, you got to wear a seatbelt. That's one of the rules or you get a ticket. I would just note that we often share our houses, but we're often alone in our cars. So I think many people think of their cars as a very private place and they know that their houses are shared. So I, I, I do think there's some interesting tension between cars and houses. We would love for you to participate in our show today. We'd love for you to email us your questions. Our address is legalterms 
at mpbonline.org. We're talking with Professor Matthew Hall about your rights in encounters with police. And hey, we are about to start a new holiday enforcement period in Mississippi. I'll tell you about the last one next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. Or you could find MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org radio. Now, the Mississippi Highway Patrol's Thanksgiving holiday travel enforcement period was from Sunday. Uh, it concluded Sunday the 27th at midnight. It began Wednesday at 6 a.m. the 23rd, and MHP issued 9,000 179 citations, made 172 arrests for impaired driving, and investigated 212 crashes, resulting in 43 injuries with six fatal crashes and six deaths. The fatal crashes occurred in Stone, Scott, Leake, Rankin, Clark, and Marshall counties. So we certainly hope everyone, everyone will be extra careful driving from now until January 2nd. Well, we want you to be careful all the time, but especially with our cold weather and uh, the times where people will maybe be having a little more alcohol or traveling more to visit family and friends, please drive extra carefully. This morning, we're talking about your rights while encountering the police with our guest, Professor Matthew Hall. Let's go to the phones. We're going to go to Bay Springs and speak with Jerry. Jerry, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Uh, yes, ma'am. I sure enjoy your show. We've heard a lot of the concept of originalism lately, uh, which I think is kind of a ridiculous concept because women wouldn't be able to vote. And we'd still have legal slavery. But uh, the search and seizure thing of the Constitution it seems like stopping someone and getting a sample of their breath is a seizure of uh, evidence that could be used against them. That's also the, the Fifth Amendment. And uh, it goes even further when uh, you're taken to the station or hospital to get a blood test. And uh, I'd just like for the attorney to comment on that and uh, if there would be any, I, I know there's been court cases about it before, and I think the Supreme Court has sustained the laws, but uh, I just wonder what their thoughts on, on that are. Jerry, thanks for calling with a great question about breathalyzer testing and about blood testing. So if we're talking about a DUI arrest, so uh, the officer is arresting someone for DUI, the Supreme Court has said that you can go ahead and do the breathalyzer. The police don't need to get a warrant to do that. They can do that and that it's not a significant additional intrusion. So the Supreme Court has sort of resolved the breathalyzer question. But we get a really more complex result when it comes to blood testing. So the Supreme Court has said that for blood testing, the police do need to get a warrant because it's a far more dramatic intrusion into the body. It's not just breath expelled from the body, but it's a needle piercing the skin. So a classic bodily intrusion. And so you might think that's really simple and that that's clear and a good result. But then to make things more complicated, 
the Supreme Court has said that one of the exceptions to a warrant requirement is what we call exigent circumstances. So an emergency situation or some other dramatic situation. And with blood testing, the possible dramatic situation is the deterioration of the evidence of blood alcohol. So if we have a suspect and the police claim that they need a blood test to determine the blood alcohol level right now, and that if we wait four hours to get a warrant, that we won't have an accurate blood alcohol reading, that might allow the police to go ahead and do the blood test based upon this exigent circumstances claim. So yet again, we get a, a rule that lawyers can use, but not a very clear result for average people or a clear answer for police officers in the field when it comes to blood testing. But we do have a clear answer when it comes to breathalyzers. Very good to know. Thank you, Jerry, for that question. Let's now go to Pascagoula. We've got Paula on the line. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms, Paula. What's your comment or question? Yes, good morning. Thanks for the really excellent programming as usual. Uh, but I would like to know, um, since in Mississippi, if you're not a U.S. citizen, that is stated in your driver license right on top of, you know, in big, big letters that you're not a U.S. citizen, I was curious of what the legislation currently is in Mississippi when the police stopped you and looked at your driver license, sees that you're not a U.S. citizen. Are they allowed, is it within Mississippi law, for them to ask for immigration documents? And I also was um, curious about whether there's any federal ruling that um, supersedes the state laws, because I'm just really surprised that this is such a a different situation from state to state. And in Texas, for example, it doesn't even say uh, that you're not a U.S. citizen on your driver's license. So I I was wondering why that is in Mississippi, that it, it started stating in the driver's license recently, if you are not a U.S. citizen, and what's within the Mississippi uh, state law as far as the rights of, of the police to, to ask for immigration documents. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks, Paula. Paula, I'm so glad you called with that question. Thank you. So I, I promise I'll get to the driver's license piece and the request for documents piece in just a minute, but I want to start with something really big and important. It's a, it's feature about our Constitution that I think is really beautiful and meaningful, which is in most of our Constitution, we have rights based on the fact that we are people, not citizens. In in most provisions of the Constitution, it says the people have these rights, not citizens. So every single human being in the United States has civil liberties, not just U.S. citizens. So all of these principles that we're talking about, about the interactions between people and the police. Every single person, whether they are a U.S. citizen, whether they are an immigrant who has legal status here, whether they're a a person who does not have documentation, regardless of their status in the country, they have the same rights vis-a-vis the police. And I think that's a really beautiful feature of our Constitution. And it makes our system different 
Driver's licenses are a question of state law. There are some federal statutes requiring that all licenses have certain features for TSA and for entrance to courthouse and airports, but states are allowed lots of latitude about what they put on their driver's licenses and what they don't. And the federal government could step in and pass a national statute telling states what has to be there or what can't be there. But because we have a federal system, the federal government has allowed states to experiment on driver's licenses. And then your last question was about requests for documents. And Paul, I want to admit, I don't know whether Mississippi has a general state law about that, but many cities have their own rules about whether the police are allowed to ask for documentation. And some states have passed statewide statutes prohibiting the police from doing that. And, and again, this is a place where we could have a uniform federal rule if Congress and the president could get together and, and pick one, but where our current resolution is that we let states and in fact, many localities make their own decisions about whether the police will cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement or not. Wow, we've got some great discussions going on. We've got one more call right now before our break. It's Russell from Grenada. Russell, we're glad you've called in to In Legal Terms today. Our guest is Professor Matthew Hall. We're discussing police interaction. What's your comment or question? Well, I had a question about the police. Uh, I stopped at a, I don't know if I can name the particular sandwich shop, but I stopped at a sandwich shop here in the city of Grenada to get a sandwich, and it was right after I had got over COVID. And what happened was uh, the guy behind the counter was the girl fished part of the sandwich, and the fella came from the cash register and began to scratch his face before he put the gloves on and asked me what else I wanted on my sandwich. To make a long story short, I just left the sandwich shop, and I got in my car to call in the store to tell the manager what happened, but I couldn't get the number. So I went to where my wife was, and my daughter sent me the number. And I called and told the manager that I left the sandwich shop because the man was scratching his face over the over the food before he put the glove on. Then when he did put the glove on, he grabbed the glove by the fingers. And I thought that probably contaminated the, 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 the glove. But to make a long story short, the police came and uh, actually put me a handcuff and asked me to go to the store and pay for the sandwich. I asked the police, did you look at the tape? I asked the man at the store, told the man, look at the tape. Because they told me they had cameras. But to make a long story short, he put me a handcuff and told the people that I had stole sandwiches. But I never left the store with a sandwich. And that was my question. Police did that to me. So do I have a case or what? Oh, Russell. That, that, oh, God bless you. That, no, ugh. That uh, that seems like a, a, a poor interaction with the police. Usually we want to think of them as officer-friendly. Um, do you have any comments, uh, Professor Hall, about Russell's interaction? So, Russell, thank you for calling, and I'm sorry that you had such an unpleasant encounter with the police. It, I, I think that there's an interesting dilemma in Russell's question. So from Russell's point of view, the police should not be handcuffing him unless they are arresting him or unless he presents some public danger. So in general, again, from Russell's point of view, the police should not be handcuffing him if all they're doing is asking him to come back into the shop and resolve a dispute with the shop. From the police's point of view, 
they're at the mercy of what witnesses tell them. So if the first set of witnesses says to the police, Russell walked out of the shop without paying for a sandwich, that's the information the police have. And I, I think one of the unfortunate things in society is that police are often likely to believe business owners right away. Maybe they'll change their minds later, but business owners have a lot of influence with the police. So Russell, I'm, I'm sorry to not give you more concrete legal advice. It does sound to me like a situation where from your point of view, the police handcuff you in a situation where they shouldn't have and the lawyer might be able to help you. Oh, gosh. Well, we're glad you called in and there you go. That's once again, uh, if you do receive a, a ticket, that's a a summons to uh, how did you pro- <laughs> how did you say that earlier, Professor Hall? No, Liz, you got it right. A, a citation, a ticket is a summons to appear in court. You can either pay it and plead guilty and resolve the matter or you can assert your right to go into court and, and dispute the charge. We have one more segment to go. We're going to take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our guest is Professor Matthew Hall, and we're talking about our rights when dealing with our police. If you would like to know more about police encounters and how you could interact with them, I've got a website for you. I'll tell you about that next. Thank you. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. Oh, you can even read our show because they do transcripts of it. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Now, ACLU Mississippi has a Know Your Rights Police Encounters website. I'll have a link to that site on the information for this show. Maybe print it off, stick it in your glove box, and then if you get pulled over, you'll you'll be able to read it real quick to see to remember what your rights are. We're talking with Professor Matthew Hall from the University of Mississippi School of Law about our rights when dealing with the police. Let's take a phone call and go to Mobile. Joe, we're glad you've called in today. What's your comment or question? Yes. Okay. Uh, Professor, uh, a driver's license is a contract, is it not? No, Joe, I don't know that I would describe a driver's license as a contract. It, it's certainly a privilege that the state accords you, but I don't know that I would say that it's a contract. Why are well, you asking? It, well, every time you, uh, well, every driver's license that I know of in any state, you have to sign, you have to sign it. So you're, you're signing a contract. What I'm trying to say is that I have driven for the last 40 years with no driver's license. I do get pulled over sometimes. I do get tickets. I do pay the fine, but I refuse to drive my car with a driver's license. Let me tell you why. Because according to the U.S. Constitution, we have the right to travel. Is that true? Yes or no? So, Joe, that that is one of the interesting rights that we have. And unlike other rights in the Constitution, that right actually comes from the privileges and immunities clauses. So it's a 
really interesting piece of constitutional history about where that right comes from. But I, I think you're taking sort of a constitutional resistor argument to the Constitution. And uh, we law professors just disagree with you. It, it's a completely legitimate safety law for states or for the federal government to require driver's licenses. So I have to say, I just think you're wrong. Joe, we appreciate you calling in. We have just a few minutes left in our show. Uh, Professor Gershon, what uh, what was the one of the last questions we wanted to get into with uh, Professor Hall about police encounters? Well, you know, we talked about this has been a great show. I wish we had more time, but we, we talked about cars and we talked about houses. But what about the stuff outside your house, like your trash? You know, we roll I roll my trash out, you know, dutifully every every Sunday night. Um can, and if the police wanted to, could they go through my trash without a warrant? So this is another one of those ironic places. When we're thinking about our cars, we're often alone in them. We feel like that's a private space. Our homes or apartments, we know those are our castles. The police aren't allowed in without a warrant. If you're thinking about your trash, a lot of us have sort of embarrassing stuff in our trash. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to be gross, but like hair that you've pulled out of your hairbrush. I mean, you have really personal things in your trash. And here's the irony. Once you put it out for collection, it's abandoned property. And the Supreme Court has said that once it's abandoned property, once you put your trash out for collection, you no longer have any privacy rights in it. Even if you have all of this very personal stuff in, in your property, even if the police could come and pick it up and get your DNA from your trash. So you actually do not have privacy rights in the trash and the police are allowed to pick it up and search it once you put it out for collection. Hey, what about I, everything else in your yard? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, um, I, I just wanted to back up while we have just a couple of minutes. We had a caller who couldn't stay on the line. And when we were talking about getting pulled yes, over... Uh, what if you say no, if they say, can we search your vehicle? What if you say no? So I think this is the, another one of those differences between the way the law is supposed to work, the sort of ivory tower law school version of the law and the way it works in the field. The way it's supposed to work is that if the officer asks you for consent to search your car or consent to come into your house, you are absolutely allowed to say no, and it should not count against you. But what we know practically is that some officers will view that as evasion. Now, the officer is going to have to offer in front of a judge some explanation for the evasion other than your refusal to give consent. But lots of police officers are able to convince judges that a suspect that a person is being evasive and nervous and like we discussed earlier, I, I think that's often a bogus doctrine. I think judges should re, re, should reject arguments where the officer says nothing but evasive and nervous. So, Liz, to go back to answer your question, you are supposed to be able to say no to the officer and not suffer because you have asserted your rights. Okay, Professor Gershon. What about Professor Gershon's uh, the stuff that's not in your trash, but uh, other things outside of your yard? So bizarrely, most of your yard is fair game for the police. The Supreme Court calls your yard an open field. E even if you have fences up, even if you have no trespassing signs, the police are allowed to search your yard. They just can't come up right into the bushes next to your house. So interesting. It really is. Um, and so, I, you know, um, 
So what do you say to someone who says, well, I'm not worried about it. If I haven't done anything wrong, then, then, you know, why would I have anything to hide? I think what I would say to them is there are many instances of people who are falsely accused and the constitution and these rights protect us, whether we're guilty or innocent, they protect us from the possibility of an abusive government that's overly aggressive. And we'll end it with that. Oh, it's been so nice. It's it's almost the gang back together. I'm I'm the the new kid. Well, even Ringo uh, was a replacement for whatever that guy's name was. So, thank you so much, Professor Hall. Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you, Liz. Our legal team consists of. Today, Kevin Farrell, our call screener intern, Charles Arnold, and our podcast producer, Jermaine Flood. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Everyone stay safe uh, during this holiday time. And join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.